0: The Critical Pediatric Resuscitation. I'm Tori Weatherford and I'm an emergency medicine physician and pediatric emergency
1: medicine physician in Orlando, Florida. And I'm Kelly Borat. I'm a pediatric critical care physician in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we will be talking
0: about the approach to the initial ED-based resuscitation and management of the critically ill pediatric patient. We're gonna start our series with talking about asthma. This is something that we talk about to each other a lot. And, you know, from
1: the ER perspective, the critically ill asthmatic can be a very scary situation. And from an intensive care standpoint, I think it's really important that these patients get aggressively treated up front to help streamline their therapies in the ICU. So
0: our first Point, you know, we want to talk about how do you determine an asthmatic is super sick? When you first go into the room, what are you seeing? For most of us, if we see a kid who's really tachypnic, whose stats are 90%, who uh, is tachycardic, we can assume that this kid is somewhat ill. The kids that can be a little bit tricky, I think, are your older kids who can sometimes don't look as tachypnic, who aren't retracting as much. It can be a little bit hard to determine how sick those kids are. Do you have any tips for us, Dr. Bora?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that the kids that are harder to tell are the more adolescent age group because they have learned to compensate for their asthma throughout the years, especially the ones that are athletes. So I find those to be the most challenging patients, Um, but I do agree that Tachypnea, hypoxemia, and all the, and tachycardia, all those things that you mentioned are definitely good indicators on how sick the kid is. The biggest thing for me in an asthmatic is are they actually moving air or is their chest silent when you listen to them on exam? You know, let's talk about the kid whose chest is silent.
0: This is the kid who, you know, has been at home, maybe mom and dad have been doing NEVs every couple of hours and they brought them in because the child is just not improving. You know, I think we all know our initial treatment is going to be albuterol.
1: Now, how much albuterol? So albuterol is always the first step, but you always want to dose it correctly to make sure that they are getting the maximum amount of albuterol they can be. That is pretty critical in helping get these kids out of status asthmaticus. So, what we normally start with is a half per kilo to one per kilo. And I usually like to start with one per kilo for my kids because they are critically ill to help really relax those lower airways and get some air movement going. So one per kilo is really where I start with a maximum of 20 milligrams. And we're
0: adding Atrovent to that. Is that right? Because early Atrovent is key to getting these kids to turn around.
1: Yeah. So Atrovent. The studies on Atrovent have really shown that they help prevent admissions. So Atrovent early is important for us as well. So for these kids who are have a silent chest, we know we're sick.
0: We've got the neb going. Now, you and I talk about this a lot is, honestly, this kid's getting an IV. There's no way that this child should be taking stuff by mouth or breathing too fast. And then I'm a believer that if you pop an IV in the kid, not only are you giving IV steroids, you should be giving magnesium um, at 50 mgs per kg. Now, I also will give them some a little bit of fluid just to counteract any hypotension from the magnesium. Now, do you agree or how do you approach that with those other therapies?
1: So I agree. Any kid that you think is critically ill that needs to come to the ICU from the ER in status asthmaticus needs an IV. They need solumedrol as their choice of steroids because of the quicker onset. I agree that giving anything oral is probably not the best way to go. And even IV decadron is not my favorite because the onset is not as quick, even though decadron usually lasts longer. Magnesium, I think, is really important because if you give it up front, that'll help bronchodilate and help relieve symptoms. And you can give more Magnesium boluses if you need to, but usually magnesium tries to help prevent any kind of admission into onto the floor or even into the ICU. Um, I agree with giving saline. I think saline is important because in kids that have um, or that are in status asthmaticus, they've been to Kipnik for who knows how long, so they have insensible losses from them breathing so quickly, and they also have high intrathoracic pressures, which decrease the preload to the right side of their heart. So by giving boluses, you are able to increase the preload to the right side of the heart, therefore increasing their cardiac output and improving their perfusion and their coronary perfusion as well.
0: Now you mentioned giving magnesium boluses. I'll be honest in the emergency department, I've never done that. I've given just one dose. How often are you giving magnesium boluses?
1: Magnesium boluses are pretty much adjunctive therapy in the ICU. We give it to target severe asthmatics, to target a magnesium between three and four, but that is after they're already on tributylene, after they're already on aminophilin, after they're on continuous albuterol and high dose steroids. Some of the older ICU physicians will do magnesium drips, um, but magnesium drips versus magnesium boluses to keep a target magnesium between three and four is what we normally do. And there's no actual evidence to support that a drip versus boluses, which one is better. There's no evidence to really suggest which one is better. So it's really just tailored to the physician that's taking care of that patient. So from
0: the ER perspective, just give them their initial dose, let you guys worry about the rest.
1: Yes, I think that is correct.
0: So I think most asthmatics turn around, right? They've gotten their 20 milligrams of albuterol. They've gotten their solumedrol. They've gotten their mag. Most of these kids are turning around. Now, I've even had kids, I will discharge after this because they look so great. But what about these kids, those scary ones who are still looking pretty crummy? They're about halfway through their neb. They're really working. Potentially, you have an end title on them, you know, and that's going up and you start to get a little bit concerned. When do you pull the trigger on BiPAP?
1: So BiPAP is something that we do a lot in the ICU. And in some of the EDs, they've started putting these asthmatics on BiPAP as well. And I think it's incredibly helpful for patients that have gotten either three back-to-back continuous albuterol with atrovent NEBS already, or just continuous albuterol, depending on the protocol in that specific ED. After like one or two NEBS, if they are still working and have diminished breath sounds, I think that is an indication for BiPAP. Now, when you say NEBS, are you talking about the 20
0: milligram NEBS or the sorry 2.5 milligrams of albuterol and 0.5 of Atrivent that is considered our classic like duo NEBS?
1: I'm talking about like the half to one milligram per kilo. Oh, no. therapy. <laughs>
0: yeah. So you ever see anybody or do you ever find benefit in initially placing a kid on BiPAP? Or is it if their work of breathing is just kind of, you know, you start the nebulizer and say they came in via EMS and they had a an neb in EMS, they had another duo neb, you're going ahead and starting them on that 15 to 20 milligram neb depending on their weight. Sometimes I will be honest, I call for the BiPAP because we know it's going to take some time to get the circuit set up in order to deliver continuous albuterol.
1: Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. I think that that kid sounds like they need BiPAP and a kid that comes in altered needs BiPAP as well.
0: Okay, so you will similar to how we do in adults with COPD, their CO2 is high. And that's the reason they're altered. We're going to put these kids on BiPAP.
1: Yes, because they're having trouble ventilating. So that's why their CO2 is high and why they're altered. However, if you're able to help their ventilation with BiPAP, then that will help resolve the hypercapnia. Do you find any role for high flow nasal cannula in these kids? So we use high flow quite often in these kids Um, even for tachypnea, even for patients that have um, diminished aeration at the bases, but are moving air in their upper lobes pretty well. um, We start at, for ICU criteria, it's one and a half to two per kilo of high flow. And that really helps with their work of breathing. You can also deliver the albuterol, the continuous albuterol through a high flow device as well. So the big difference in why I would pick BiPAP is if I think it's more
0: of a ventilation issue, or they're really not moving any air, I'm going to go to BiPAP. But if I find they're moving some air in their upper lobes, just diminished at the bottom, but they're having a lot of increased work of breathing, maybe set up that continuous albuterol through high flow. Does that
1: sound right? Um, I think that that's definitely reasonable. I think that the patients that need the BiPAP up front are the patients that are somnolent and that won't that are not responding to IV sticks or other therapies that we're doing, because they're the ones that are having issues with ventilation and need the most assistance up front. Let's say
0: we've we've got them on high flow or BiPAP, depending on um, kind of their exam, and we're concerned, you know, they've gotten the mag, they're still kind of struggling. And at this point, to me, we're probably about an hour and 15 minutes into their ED visit before I'm getting moving on to this next thing. They look absolutely terrible at 30 minutes, and I've gotten them on BiPAP. And they've already gotten the mag, they've already gotten the fluids. There's a good chance I'm giving that person epi to try to prevent intubation if they're not look if they look bad.
1: Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. I think epi is an excellent choice, especially sub Q, because that works within the first 15 minutes to help bronchodilate. Epi um, works on alpha and beta receptors, so it's gonna really make you tachycardic and give you that those alpha side effects. However, it's really going to bronchodilate. It's a powerful bronchodilator. So I think that that is a really important step. And you can repeat this a couple times, correct? <laughs> you can.
0: Now let's talk about some other adjunctive therapies. There's terbutaline and aminophiline. You know, where I am, it's kind of an a, uh, intensivist preference. I find turbutylene honestly, to be a little bit easier because it's a sub-Q dose. Um, Versus aminophylline, which is a drip. Um, but you mentioned earlier
1: even doing both of them together. So terbutaline in the ER is probably the best choice. It's easier to dose and it's probably quicker to get. Um, Aminophylline, I would reserve for the ICU because that is more of a drip. We also do terbutaline as a drip in the ICU, but terbutaline is much easier to get in the ER setting, and I would stick to that and Epi at this point in time. I think we're about, we're hitting about the two hour
0: mark. Certainly we've called for help, but potentially we're at a freestanding ER and we're going to be waiting for somebody to help transport this, this kid. So that's why it's important to kind of know your whole algorithm, you know, in these asthmatics and know when things aren't going well. So let's just kind of recap, you know, we get this very sick asthmatic, they come in the door, their chest is silent. We're starting with albuterol, At 0.5 to 1 mg per kg with a max of 20 milligrams of albuterol. We're not going to care about the tachycardia that results from this kind of high doses of albuterol. We're also not going to care about the lactic acidosis that we may get as a result. We're going to give them a fluid bolus. We're going to give them solumedrol. We're going to give them a dose of magnesium. We potentially have to give them a dose of like a sub Q epi. We've considered giving terbutylene sub Q. We're waiting on people to get here. How do we know when our kid is really not turning around?
1: If this patient is hypoxic and still not moving air, then that has become a major problem for us. So we need to consider intubation at this point. Now, I want to make sure that the steroid do- dose is appropriate, which is a two per kilo dose. That's important to note. And otherwise, I would consider intubating this child because they sound like they're maxed out on their BiPAP and they're on their steroids, they're on their continuous albuterol, they've gotten magnesium, um, they've gotten fluids, and you've given them a dose or two of sub-Q epi, and you've given them a bolus of terbutaline of five mics per kilo, um, and they're still not moving any air, then that's a time that you should highly consider intubating, the patient, intubating this patient. Intubating a severe asthmatic is not something to take likely. It's a very... D- dangerous situation. Um, a lot of the times we like to have ECMO on standby, although it's not necessary.
0: One of the things we didn't talk about was maybe your initial BiPAP settings and some of these asthmatics.
1: Normally start a uh, child on BiPAP on just 10 on five. And if they are not responding to that, we'll crank it up to 12 on six. and so then we'll crank it up to 18 on 6, 18 on 7, and then 20 on 10 is really your max setting for BiPAP in an asthmatic. Um,
0: yeah, as you said, you know, if you're having to intubate an asthmatic, this is scary. This is like last ditch. Nobody's happy right now. My first choice is going to be ketamine in this kid. This is going to be my induction agent, and I'm going to go for ketamine. I'm also you know, I'm an ER trained person. I believe in RSI. So I'm going to paralyze this kid probably with succinylcholine because that's what I have available or rocuronium. What medicines would you use and anything, any other special
1: considerations? I would definitely use ketamine. It's going to help bronchodilate. I think that's an excellent induction agent. I think that in pediatrics, we use a lot more rock than the adult world does. So my first choice would be rock Dose is one milligram per kilogram, and to give another one milligram per kilogram if you are having laryngo- if the patient is having a laryngospasm. Luckily,
0: ketamine lasts for a while. So this kid's gonna be pretty sedated, even though they're paralyzed. And we always want to get make sure the kid is appropriately sedated and not just paralyzed without sedation. But I think it's important to have stuff ready. Now most of the ketamine doses come in these huge vials, 500 milligrams. It's totally appropriate. You give the initial dose of ketamine. If the child starts to seem like they're waking up, their heart rate is going up, their blood pressure is going up, you know, maybe they're paralyzed. I would probably just slug them with another one milligram per kilo of ketamine.
1: Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. Ketamine's really good. Um, sometimes we do a little bit of Versed, like a very small dose of Versed just to take the edge off of them as they are fighting and battling us while we're trying to set up the intubation. So we try to give them a small dose of Versed, maybe a little, and then one milligram per kilogram of ketamine. And if they need more, I agree, they definitely can have more. In a patient that you're doing RSI on, I do think that going with a higher dose of rock is probably the best thing to do. And just starting out with two milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium.
0: Now we talked about intubating this person. And I can even in a community, Edie, uh, not everybody's comfortable with setting up a vent in a kid to start with. And there's special considerations when you set up a vent for this asthmatic. You know, you want their I to E ratio. You want to give them time to totally exhale, to prevent breast stacking. So do you want to talk about some initial vent settings? Because this is really your wheelhouse.
1: Yeah. So initial vent settings are definitely more thought, thought-provoking than probably intubating a bronchiolitic, but the more complicated vent management is done upstairs in the ICU. So like you were saying, initially, there are several ways, there are, most, there are two schools of thought on how to approach this. Like, do you let them, do you intubate them and then let them breathe on their own? Or do you intubate them and take full control over their respirations and let their body rest for a little while. So you've given this patient two milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium. So now they're paralyzed and they're sedated. So the initial thought process is to completely take over their respirations for them and put them on basic vent settings. Like you said, you want the I to E ratio to be longer. So instead of like a one to two, you want it to be one to three, one to four, even one to five to allow them to exhale completely. And you can see that on the vent and you can then match their respiratory rate based off of that. But if you don't want to actually calculate that, just put them on a respiratory rate of like 10 and watch and see if with each breath, they completely go back to their baseline. And if that's the case, then they're fully exhaling.
0: What do you mean go back to their baseline? How are you seeing that? So
1: you'll see their flow curve on the ventilator. Um, and you'll be able to see that they'll inhale; it'll be an upswing. They'll exhale, and then they'll start going back to baseline. Um, the other thing is, you can start their PEEP at something low or something physiologic. So I can I would recommend starting them at a physiologic PEEP of five, and allowing their body to just rest while they're on those vent settings, and then just normal tidal volumes of. Five to seven per kilo, five to seven cc's per kilo. And The really important part in the ER is to make sure that their respiratory rate isn't set high so they're able to exhale fully on each breath to prevent breath stacking and to prevent increasing their intrathoracic pressure that's already high.
0: And the mode you're picking for all of this is an assist control volume control, is that
1: right? No. So we pick. PRVC, pressure regulated volume control, that is our favorite vent setting in all of pediatrics. And that's what you should pick for an asthmatic as well, that you just paralyzed and sedated for intubation.
0: So PRVC then gives you control over their volume, which you want because you want to set those tidal volumes, right? Yep. And then it allows you to, what is the pressure doing for us?
1: So it's a pressure regulated volume control. So it allows the vent actually allows your intrinsic pressure, however much pressure it takes to generate that tidal volume, it'll measure it out for you and it'll make sure that you don't hit pressure limits to target that volume. Overall, what it's trying to do is trying to deliver a breath that's similar to normal respiration with a decelerating flow curve, which allows it to mimic our normal respirations. However, in asthmatics their decelerating expiration is much longer than it is in a non-asthmatic. So that's why you want to make sure your respiratory rate is low and your I to E is longer than usual.
0: And one of the things I would also very much encourage people to do, and I think gets forgotten, is you intubate the child and their treatment's not over. You need to be giving them albuterol through the endotracheal tube Um, And having that set up because there's a reason you had to intubate them. And it was because they were so bronchospastic that you weren't moving air. So don't forget to have that set up, especially we don't, their transport time could be up to an hour in some cases. And like, that's an hour of lost time. And potentially this child's going to get worse if we don't adjust for that.
1: Definitely agree. I think continuing the continuous albuterol is key. If they're there for six or more hours, give them another dose of steroids. If they um, need another dose of magnesium, you can try that as well. And if they're there for hours upon hours waiting for a transport team, it would be in everyone's best interest if the pharmacy could deliver a turbutylene drip as well. And start that.
0: And of course, we're gonna do that in combination with our PICU attending.
1: Yes. And that wraps
0: up our talk on the critically ill asthmatic. Thank you for listening. See you next time.